This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. I'm joined by Graham Williams. Thanks for coming in. Always glad to be here. We've got a cool show today. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, Later on, we'll be learning more about 5G, the latest uh, wireless standard that will be here sooner than a lot of us uh, think. If you thought cell phone download speeds were pretty fast now, wait till you hear how fast 5G can go. Uh, We'll also be talking about sports and tech. A lot of the major leagues are making deals with social platforms like Facebook and Twitter to stream their games. What's that all about? Is there money in it? We'll find out from uh, one of our contributors, Manny Kovacs from IT World Canada. And a really cool segment coming up after the break. You've heard a lot about Snapchat. You probably don't use it unless you're under 20 years old. Uh, But it is a very popular social program. They've been going through some challenges lately. There's a lot of competition from Instagram. We're going to give you a kind of a uh, a 101 on uh, what Snapchat is about, the problems they're going through, and uh, what the future holds uh, for them. And now the tech news, uh, Graham. We've got a lot of interesting uh, things uh, happening. Uh, Google in the news. Uh, audio is turned off uh, for ads now. Yeah, so this is something that uh, Apple kind of came to the forefront with first, uh, both in mobile Safari and in Safari and Mac OS, uh, stopping ads from autoplaying. When they do autoplay, it uh, was muted to begin with. So if you've got a, an Apple computer or an Apple device, you've probably seen the tap to unmute. Uh, so Google has responded in kind in Chrome because clearly users are asking for this. And uh, we now have a much better, much quieter uh, web experience. So ads won't play audio anymore. That's right. You know what website I hate? What's that? I love and hate it. Mashable.com. Oh, with the video at the bottom? What the hell? (laughs) So this is a website. It's kind of pop culture and tech and all sorts of things mashed into one. Uh, I really enjoy the articles, but uh, they have this really annoying feature now that uh, down at the bottom of the webpage, which you can't see, it just auto starts playing a video. And so then you got to scroll all the way down to shut the damn thing off. You're sitting there and you're like, where is this coming from? This is one of the nice things that they had a little while back was the little speaker icon on the tab so you can see which tab yeah. is offending you. Do you know what I do now? I just shut the whole tab down because I'm so fed up. Well, I think this is what Google and Apple have kind of looked at is they are seeing this behavior where people are like, I don't even want to go look for it. So let's have these ads play. Let's have them play without volume. And if users actually want to interact with them, they can go and turn that on. Google uh, also uh, in the news, they've uh, bought Lytro. Yeah. Well, rumored into buying Lytro. Um, oh, so, sorry. Okay, I was close. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it looks like it's probably going to be a $50 million deal. Uh, it might be a done deal at this point, but uh, you know, it's, it's always the devil's in the details for these. But Lytro, a great little ca- uh, camera company that made the Lightfield camera. So explain to our listeners what this was so, or is. So instead of using a single plane of lighting, this thing basically used a tube that uh, collected light rays. And so basically it collected depth information in a scene so that you could actually focus after the fact. So you take this picture and you'd be able to move the focal plane forwards and backwards so you could change your depth of field. So if somebody's five feet away and somebody's 10 feet away, you could have that person who's 10 feet away in focus, and the person who's five feet away not in focus. It was a really cool bit of technology. They just had a hard time selling it. Yeah. So now they have a, a second life. Potentially. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the stuff that they were doing, they were doing some great stuff in hardware. They were doing some great stuff in software. So I can see Google wanting to pick this up for the software side. Um, I mean, the hardware side, again, it was a bit bulky and they didn't really get a great implementation. They had both still and video cameras. 
Uh, I don't know if they ever actually released the video camera, but uh, weren't ever, ever able to make it fly. So maybe we can see a second life with this uh, under Google. Did you ever go to church or do you go to church? Uh, I did for many years. I did too when I was younger. One of the things I remember, of course, is the collection plate. <laughs> right, pa- pa- pass the hat. Please give us some money. Uh, the Church of England now uh, is adapting to the cashless worlds, and so now you don't have to carry physical money into the church for the collection plate anymore. They take uh, Apple Pay and uh, pin car- or bank cards. Uh, you know that uh, are tap. Now, I wonder, is this done at a particular location? Do they have a basket that has the NFC or the swipe there? Is it chip and pin protected? Are we do we do we trust everyone that much? Well, do you trust God? <laughs> so uh, you can uh, they accept contact uh, contactless donations, including Apple Pay and Google Pay, and uh, it's available in sixteen thousand churches, cathedrals, and religious sites in the United Kingdom. Amen. <laughs> uh, music. Mm-hmm. It's changed so much over the past 20 years. Remember back when digital music was just starting to come in with MP3s, Napster, uh, and Pandora, and all these uh, websites where you kind of basically stole music. <laughs> um, but then iTunes came along and kind of legitimized the whole digital uh, music scene. Well, that's changed now. The majority of people in the music industry are relying on music subscription services like mm-hmm. Spotify and Apple Music. But this is uh, interesting uh, CDs and vinyl, like records, are more popular than digital downloads, once again. Well, that, that's kind of it. It makes a whole lot of sense, right? Because why would you buy a digital download when you can get it with the music subscription? So it doesn't seem to be a, a great value to, to, to own that anymore. But if you did want to own something, why not own something physical? Interesting. Do, do you download stuff anymore? Uh, no. I'm purely, I've got a Spotify account. I've got an Apple Music account. I've got a Google Play Music account. Uh, but I don't buy music anymore. I, I just stream. It's so funny. I just remember all the effort I went into uh, downloading music or ripping my CDs into my computer, like the countless hours, and it was all rendered useless with music subscription services, <laughs> like completely useless. Well, we, we see a lot of people out there now who they still do have their CD collections. And this is actually kind of the nice thing about the CD. You buy a CD and you can still rip that. Um, there actually has been a resurgence in um, ripping devices. So yes. these are uh, basically standalone devices that you take your CD collection, which has been sitting on your shelf for 20, 30 years, and start feeding these discs in, and it does the whole thing by itself in, in high quality. So we've actually seen a resurgence in those in the last couple of years because people have these collections that they don't want to get rid of. And I guess, obviously, they're buying CDs again. So it's, uh, it's a good way to have the best of both worlds. So funny, we were watching a TV show the other night with my family, and there's a song that came on the TV show, and I just didn't know what it was. So uh, I asked Siri what it was and I got it and I was able to then go on to Apple Music and listen to it and add it to a playlist. And I just, I laughed and I just said to my kids, you don't even know how lucky you guys have it because back in the day, if I heard that song on TV, chances were I would not be able to figure out what it was and (laughs) and then find that album. Do you you remember um, taping songs off the radio? Oh yeah. Right. Totally. Home, home taping <laughs> is killing the record industry. <laughs> totally. And you, you'd get it all lined up and you'd hit record. And then right in the last 10 seconds of the song, the DJ would come on and say something. Yeah. What and, a, and, and you know what? I remember when I was a, a teenager, uh, these record rental stores popped up. There was a chain called Z-Bop. Mm-hmm. There was one in Berquitlam Plaza in Coquitlam. Uh, my dad had a jewelry store there and I worked there. And uh, you know, during my break, I'd go down, rent a bunch of records. I bought a bunch of blank tapes and then I would record them. 
I don't think that was legal, but, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, their whole business premise was based on people basically doing that. But I just thought that was the cat's meow. (laughs) Piracy will find a way. Amazing. It it, it really will. And then do you remember when CD writers burners came out? I had an HP 7200i. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How much did you pay for that? I paid $600 for it. I know. I paid $700. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, this is so expensive, but I'm going to save so much money. I'm just going to be able to burn all my own CDs from music I download. Again, probably not very legitimate, uh, but- and remember how long it used to take to burn those CDs? Oh yeah, well, because it was a two times burner burned a seventy some odd minute CD in half the time, right? So it was half an hour to burn a CD. <laughs> Honestly, mine should have come with an eye patch. There was that much piracy <laughs> going on. I I buy my well, I bought my music, and now I'm subscribing to my music. So hopefully, I'm making up to those artists. I'm I trying, apologize. I'm trying to make up for it as well. But, uh, I was young. I didn't know. Uh, let's get back to the future here. When we come back, we're going to learn about Snapchat. I know lots of listeners probably don't use it, but I think it's important that you do know about it. It's a very popular social program, uh, social platform, especially for the younger folks who are trying to get. Uh, with the older uh, generation. We'll see if they can do that. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here in the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. We're broadcasting live across Canada here on the Chorus Radio Network. Still lots more tech to talk uh, in today's uh, program, uh, including uh, how sports leagues are now going with uh, social platforms like Twitter and Facebook to broadcast their games. Right now, though, I want to talk about uh, Snapchat, uh, a very popular social platform for uh, younger folks. On the line, I've got Josh Constein from TechCrunch. He's the editor-at-large over there. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. So, uh, you know, Snapchat uh, has been in uh, the news uh, over the past uh, several months. Uh, they've been very, very popular uh, with uh, the younger crowd, but uh, they recently updated their user interface, and there's been a huge backlash against it. Uh, what's uh, all the uh, the hubbub about? I think a lot of users just feel very confused because Snapchat, in this case, is combining both friends' stories and private messages into a single feed. And they used to be separated. And what that means is that for some people, it's very tough to find their friend's stories, especially if they get lots of messages. And simul- uh, simultaneously, Snapchat has moved all influencers or social media stars and anyone who doesn't follow you but that you follow into a separate feed over on the right side of the app as part of the Discover section. And that means that anyone you were kind of voyeuristically watching or those social media influencers that you kind of like to think were your friends because they appeared in your friend's story list, they're now pushed over along with the professional publishers in the Discover channel. And really, I think this makes a lot of people feel like they can't find what they want in Snapchat. Do you think they actually did any focus groups or listened to their users before they made this change? Snapchat historically goes with its gut. Evan Spiegel, the CEO, thinks that he really understands people better than even the data does. And so historically, Snapchat has made decisions without a ton of testing. In this case, they rolled the product out a little bit slowly, first in markets like the UK and Australia, before moving on to the United States. Uh, and But originally, that data proved pretty negative. There was a ton of negative reviews coming into the App Store about it. And there was also a big backlash when it did eventually roll out. So I think what Snapchat believes is that users are just going to blow over this backlash and eventually get used to the product. But I think that really that's because it sees the the product updates as something that are always good for users, whereas I think a lot of these updates are actually designed to make Snapchat more money because it turns out that 
Snapchat messaging is the most popular part of the app. And so, by, but that's not where they show any advertisements. So by mixing stories in with messages, Snapchat makes it so you're more likely to end up watching stories and seeing its ads. And that's not very user positive. So it's all about the money. <laughs> it is definitely partly about the money. The company has been losing tons and tons of money every quarter. And in fact, it recently had to make a bunch of layoffs because it's hoping to get towards profitability a little bit sooner so it doesn't end up running out of cash. But I think that's led it to make decisions that are not always the best for its users. What are some of the uh, the competitors out there doing now? Instagram is uh, you know owned by Facebook, and uh, it seems like they've been uh, over the the past uh, couple of years. Uh, I would say maybe copying a lot of the features of Snapchat. Sure. So Instagram is definitely copying a bunch of Snapchat's features. Most recently, TechCrunch spotted that there's code inside of Instagram's app that shows that it has a new name tags feature that's unreleased, but basically works a lot like the Snapchat QR snap codes where you can scan somebody's code with the app's camera to follow them. So it's definitely still copying them. But at the same time, Instagram's massive uh, organization and all the money it has behind it because it's owned by Facebook has led it to be able to rapidly iterate on features. So it's quickly adding stuff that Snapchat doesn't have. For instance, Instagram is now testing a focus portrait mode, which lets you take extra good portraits. Uh, it's also about to work on some uh, some video calling and audio calling features, so Snapchat does have that too. Uh, Really, Instagram is trying to move as quickly as possible uh, so that it doesn't feel like it's just doing what Snapchat's already done, but is actually getting out ahead. You know, if I were to look at the demographics of uh, people that use, uh, you know, the two different platforms, uh, uh, and, and this is just my gut telling me, uh, Instagram seems to ap- uh, appeal to a, a wider uh, age demographic. Snapchat typically skews younger. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, Snapchat definitely skews a little bit younger than Instagram, but that's actually been a problem for the company. For years, it said it was basically just focused on U.S. teens. It was ignoring both older users and international users. Instagram was happy to roll up those demographics. It uh, you know, purposefully did a lot of expansion and internationalization so it could pick up users around the world. And because it started as a more traditional photo-sharing feed and it was a little bit older than Snapchat, it has some of those older users on lock. And so I think what Snapchat's realized over time is that it's very tough to build a giant business off of such a narrow slice of the world's uh, population. And now it's trying to make its app more easy to use for older users. It's trying to improve its Android uh, performance and prevent crashes so that more uh, younger users in developing markets sign on with Android, and it's made some progress there. You know, Snapchat's growth rate increased significantly this last uh, quarter, but it's still way down from the 17% per quarter growth that Snapchat was seeing back before Instagram launched its clone Instagram stories. So Snapchat still has a lot to do before it can really make itself a successful business. Do you think they'll be successful? I mean, there's obviously huge competition, as you said, with Instagram being owned by Facebook. They can pour billions of dollars uh, into, you know, going after them. Uh, you know, they're kind of uh, pissing off uh, their existing customer base by doing these user interface changes uh, that aren't appealing uh, to uh, their uh, audience. Uh, and uh, uh, like you said, uh, you know, they're trying to get more advertisers on. 
Yeah, I do think that Snapchat is going to be somewhat successful long term, just because the the lifetime value of a social network user is extremely high. Because people spend so much time in these apps, they consume a ton of ads and eventually start making a lot of money for the company. The the question is really just, is Snapchat going to live up to being a real tech titan, you know, one of the big tech companies, or is it going to be a modestly strong business that just sort of plods on over time? I think it might be more in the latter because it's going to have uh, a tough time significantly growing with so much competition, but it already has a big loyal user base of over 170 million daily active users. And those people, their whole social graph is on there, their community is there. And so it's unlikely that they're going to switch away quickly. And so the big threat for Snapchat isn't that Instagram steals all its users, it's that Instagram blocks its future growth potential. You think they might be an acquisition target? Um, I think they've gotten a bit too big for most of the companies to want to buy them. Also, I think you know in, Evan Spiegel really doesn't want to sell. He wants to run the company. For him, it's a bit of a glory thing. He likes being in control. And so I can't imagine him selling to one of the other big tech platforms. But if he was going to sell, I would imagine it being to someone like Viacom trying to become the new MTV or selling to Disney and becoming you know part of their family of products, something where he's going to still be seen as the tech expertise rather than just a product in another big tech empire. Talking with our uh, tech expert, Josh Constein from TechCrunch. He's the editor at large there. Thanks so much for joining us today, Josh. Yeah, my pleasure. When we come back from the break, still more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. Still lots of tech to talk today. I want to talk now about uh, sports sports leagues and uh, how they're dealing with uh, the new uh, reality of uh, where their audiences uh, are going. Traditionally, that used to be TV and, uh, of course, radio, but more and more people are going online to uh, catch their favorite uh, sports games uh, and teams. Uh, Mandy, uh, thanks for joining us, first of all. Thank you for having me. Uh, Mandy, uh, what, what's happening here? Uh, why, why are uh, these... Uh, these teams uh, making deals uh, with uh, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world? Right. I think um, a lot of these teams and, and really just the leagues in general are seeing that this is a, a really great way to reach a wider audience. Uh, and especially because cutting cable has really become such a trend. So this really kind of bypasses that um, negative aspect of, of, you know, losing viewership and everything. So, so the news is that Facebook has gained exclusive rights to broadcast MLB games on Wednesday afternoons. And then, so that equivocates to about 25 games in a season. And then Twitter has also uh, inked a three-year deal with Major League Soccer to uh, broadcast MLS games in the U.S. Um, so really, I mean, all of these are just really trying to capitalize on that market on the Internet. Are we talking big dollars? No, <laughs> um, definitely less than you would ever see on a, a you know traditional TV broadcast deal. So the Facebook one with um, the MLB um, is worth approximately thirty to thirty-five million. Um, that's what's being reported. Um, whereas the last bundle of MLB rights sold to a broadcaster went for about five point six billion. So it's definitely a lot less. So it's not really. Uh the revenue so much uh, thereafter. It's uh, more, uh, I guess, uh, just kind of trying to expand uh, and reach different audiences. Right, exactly. And I think this is almost even like a trial run because the MLB um, 
deal was really just for 25 games, right? There are 162 games, I think, in a, in a baseball season. So this is really just kind of testing the waters to see if it is successful um, because Amazon has held um, Thursday night football rights for the last year, and they've done extremely well. But they're really the only um, – the NFL is really the only league that has tried this out before and seen success. So I think a lot of these other leagues are still a little skeptical of it, but definitely interested enough to test it out. You talked about Twitter and doing a, a deal with Major League Soccer. Are people are really going to watch soccer games on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, if it's there, why would, wouldn't you? I mean, if it's that easy and you see the kind of live stream box pop up on your Twitter feed, um, you might pause and, and kind of watch a couple games. Maybe it's a really interesting game. You might stop to watch a little bit more, and then they gain viewership through that. Yeah, I just find it interesting, uh, just some of these these platforms like Twitter. Is that really kind of their whole business model, streaming full games? I mean, they're definitely trying to get into this space because before Amazon held the NFL rights for Thursday Night Football, Twitter actually did the year before. Um, but it didn't go very well. They had a pretty low viewership, so I think that kind of goes with what you're saying, that it's not very successful, whereas Amazon has found a lot more success in that space. So it will be interesting to watch because, I mean, Twitter has kind of doubled down on this whole Periscope live streaming uh, application, and now they're moving into sports as well. So we'll really have to wait and see. So we talked about some of the social platforms, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you mentioned Amazon uh, are having some success with uh, the NFL on Thursday nights. Where's Netflix in all of this? Well, that's interesting because um, Netflix has actually come out, I think it was last week or maybe even two weeks ago, um, basically saying that they don't ever um, plan to enter this battle for live news and sports broadcasting. They're saying that they want to keep their focus on creating great content like movies and TV shows, which they sort of call their crown jewels. Um, but they're really going to stay away from this game of live streaming, which is a really interesting perspective when you look at all the rest of the tech giants like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, who are really vying and, and battling for these deals now. Do you watch sports yourself? I'm a big sports person, yes. <laughs> and does this appeal to you? Because I, I think you would probably be their target demographic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm also really big on social media, specifically Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the Facebook one is a little bit more intriguing just because I, I believe that's free and it is, there's no subscription model to that. The Twitter one is not available in Canada, unfortunately, so I don't know how we would be able to access that right now. But absolutely, I would watch um, things on Facebook. It'll be interesting over the next uh, few years. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, a decline in TV viewership numbers. I'm sure the major uh, sports leagues uh, are probably a little concerned about this. You know, you talked about the MLB uh, deal worth over $5 billion for TV. Mm -hmm. You know, if their audience uh, continues uh, to go online, I guess they're trying to figure out what that's going to look like. Right, and the MLB has definitely struggled the last couple of years as well uh, with viewership. The you know baseball doesn't seem to be appealing to younger audiences anymore, and so I mean you can see within the MLB itself they're really trying to uh, pick up the pace of play by adding uh, time limits for how long a pitcher can spend on the mound and that sort of thing. So I do wonder if this move to try and garner a new audience through live streaming, which you'd assume would be a younger audience, is their way of reaching out and trying to, to bridge that gap and, and stop the flow uh, of going downhill with viewership.
Yeah, I just question that because, uh, again, you know, I'm looking at Twitter. I'm just wondering, you know, where are people watching these games? Uh, are they doing it on their, their smartphones? Or are they out and about? You know, it's not really an experience anymore if you're kind of sitting there on the bus uh, or in a park or food court, uh, for that matter, you know, as opposed to sitting in the living room and just kind of really getting into the game. That's a great point. But, I mean, I think they also do have to target those people that might be in transit or whether they cut the cable or they're not home in time to watch a game. You know, like you still want them to be engaged. You still want them to care about the sport and the games that are happening. So I think they're really just trying to bridge that gap and and trying to to reach as many people as they possibly can. You know, even if they only tune in for five minutes or something while they're, you know, on a public bathroom or a public bus or something like that. I mean, I still think that that helps their viewership numbers. And, I mean, I'm not in the business, but I'd assume that that's what they care about. Well, I can watch uh, major... uh league soccer games now uh, on Twitter on my smartphone while I'm sitting in the bathroom. That's exciting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kill all that um, dead time, right? <laughs> We're talking with Manny Kovacs from IT World Canada. Thanks for joining us today. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Still lots more tech to talk here on Get Connected. We'll be back after this break. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. Still lots of uh, tech to talk, including our app of the week coming up after uh, the next break. On the line, uh, we have uh, our tech expert, uh, Brian Jackson from IT World Canada. Wanted to get him on the line to talk about uh, 5G some more. We've been uh, hearing a lot about that uh, over the past uh, few months, but it's an exciting new technology that's going to open up uh, the world to so many new possibilities. Uh, Brian, can you give our listeners a uh, kind of uh, general idea of what 5G is all about and, and why it's a, a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, 5G is just supercharged wireless connectivity. So, I mean, many of your listeners will remember the transition from 3G to 4G and how much better services and wireless uh, speeds are now. I mean, if you ever tried to uh, stream, say, a YouTube video on your 3G phone, you could sort of do it, and sometimes it would load and not stutter along, but really you weren't counting on that to work out very well. But as as soon as 4G arrived, we were just all streaming uh, YouTube videos, Spotify songs, uh, and it's pretty expected that it's going to be fast and high quality. So with 5G, you know, in theory, it could be 100 times faster than 4G. So the applications for this and the type of data that you could move uh, is just at a whole other scale. And this is why people are talking about all sorts of applications and disruptive uses for wireless technology, where you could have autonomous driving uh, cars, self-driving cars that are in a network uh, connected in real time, making decisions, crunching data, all supplied by 5G connectivity. Well, I think that's kind of the the big uh, thing about 5G. Obviously, the speed is going to be there, but uh, the bandwidth and how many devices can be connected and talking to each other at the same time is uh, tremendous. That's just it. And the, the great thing about this technology is not only is it better and faster for like those high speed applications like say streaming 4K content in real time from a sports game or something but it's also much easier and more reliable to keep a bunch of devices connected so if you're talking about an internet of things deployment where you're going to have a bunch of sensors in a road or whatever 
oil oil patch uh, that is a perfect application for 5g as well and what's happening here in Canada you know how, how is that coming along yeah I mean carriers are sort of plugging away at it we've seen a couple of live t- pilot tests and just like proof of concept technologies but we're not really ready for uh, to start upgrading the networks and uh, deploying the cell towers on 5G wireless yet. I'd say that uh, really around 2020 or 2021 is when we can expect that. I mean, we haven't even auctioned the spectrum that these carriers will need to run uh, wide-scale 5G networks in Canada yet. So it's a few years away, but what's happening right now is that the government is providing money $200 million, and this is in Ontario and Quebec. So it's going to work with businesses to test out their applications and products. So say uh, you want to, you know, Mike, uh, maybe you feel like you want to launch your own self-driving car network. You could use this money, uh, apply for it, and if you get approved, you could test out your equipment with uh, these different innovation hubs, these research centers that are already established uh, different locations in the provinces. So they'll have early access to this equipment, and you'll see, you can prove out your business model there. Go and see if your technology will be compatible with 5G and if everything will basically work as you expect it to. We're talking with Brian Jackson from IT World Canada about 5G. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we come back from the break, still more tech to talk uh, and our app of the week. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Want to talk apps now, and specifically Happy Hour apps, something near and dear to my heart. On the line, we have Ashik Amit, and uh, he is the developer of Brewhound. Ashik, tell us about uh, your app. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Brewhound is a free mobile app. It's uh, available on both uh, iPhone and Android. And what it does is it provides people with access to the best food and drink happy hours um, going on around Metro Vancouver. So the app uses the person's current location and it provides them with a listing of the kind of best happy hours going on right now around them. Um, or it lets them search up to a week in advance across Metro Vancouver to find something to plan ahead for later in the week. So we're talking uh, drinks and food. Absolutely. Majority of our users really come for the food. Um, Vancouver has one of the best food scenes in North America, and we have some great food deals on Happy Hour. What inspired you to create this app? Probably a pretty familiar story to most people is I was out with my colleagues having some happy hours, and we got to kind of the last call, and we were wondering, well, where could we go from here? And after a lot of clicking around and searching on the internet with really nothing coming up easily, we thought that this would be a great idea for us to build something because there really are good deals going on all day, every day throughout Vancouver, but people just don't know what they are. And if people are able to find the information via social media or some other channel, they're usually out of date. And so our big value has been making sure all of the information we have on our app is regularly verified. So people can kind of take confidence that what they're seeing is what they'll get at the bar. Someone has to go verify it. Is that why Christina is not at uh, the office most of the day and comes in drunk around 4 o'clock? Yeah, exactly. You know, you got to go have a couple of drinks to make sure that that's the, the correct price that they have on their menu. So, yeah, how do you do it? Like, I mean, there are, I mean, there are a lot of bars and restaurants in the city. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have over 600 bars on our app, um, but there are about close to 4,000 bars and restaurants across Metro Vancouver. So even uh, even being around for a year, we, we still only have uh, 600, but we're growing. Uh, but we do have a team, and uh, our team kind of works with the bars. You either call them, email them, text some of them, just trying to get um, get the information from them, make sure we have the most up-to-date happy hour deals on our app. When I think happy hour, I just typically think 4 to 6 o'clock. Uh, are there deals outside of that time frame? Absolutely. Um, there's lunchtime happy hours. There's brunch happy hours on weekends. There's all-day specials every day. So lots of bars will have different food and different drinks on um, all day. There's different nights across the city. So wing nights is a very popular one, usually on Wednesdays, but it varies depending on the location um pasta pasta tuesdays so there's lots of stuff going on kind of all the time throughout the day so from my understanding uh you're you know one of the folks behind this uh, but you're not a developer yourself how did you go about getting this uh launched you know off the ground so i'm not a developer Um, i have worked in it but not on the development side but we kind of came across the idea and we thought this would be a really good thing to build And we kind of designed it as, you know, what would we like it to be? And we looked at some mobile apps that we really liked. And we uh, kind of came to, you know, a design that we thought this would be good for a user. And we kind of went out and looked at a bunch of um, external development parties, so third-party developers, and seeing what they had developed for people and trying to find one that kind of fit with you know, the design we were going for, the ease of use, etc. And we were able to kind of bring them on board to do all of our development, which, um, which has been fantastic. So, you know, we don't need to be super technical and understand the code. We can just kind of say, hey, we want this feature or we would like it to do this. And they're able to translate that into, you know, the technical details. Were you able to get the developers here or using offshore developers? So the company we're actually using has uh, offices based in Vancouver for kind of the the people that um, their business analysts and stuff like that, and then their programmers are based overseas. Any challenges in that? Um, definitely a lot of late night calls, uh, you know, kind of 10 p.m. Uh, onwards. But the, there's a lot of advantages that, advantages to it too, where they can be developing throughout the night. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have something to task or you can be like, hey, that works great now. And so there's definitely positives and negatives, but we've been lucky so far. And, uh, you know, it's been a good experience. Any recommendations for people wanting to create their own apps? Um, Definitely um, kind of take a look at the apps out there that you like. Try and find, you know, a couple that you're like, this is the look and feel of what I'm going for. Uh, Try and find out who developed those, or if you are talking to a developer, see what apps they have built and make sure those are kind of the style that you want. The main thing when you're building a mobile app is the user experience. So having a team that's really strong in understanding how a user will interact with the app, how to make it easy to use and visually appealing is really key. That was Ashik Emmett, the developer and man behind Brewhound. That's all the time we have left. I want to thank you for joining us here on Get Connected. Don't forget to listen to the App Show tomorrow Sunday at 10 a.m. here on CKNW 980. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, 
TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.